The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. How are we doing this morning? I think I have a better microphone. I've been told by Oliver that I could walk as far back as the second row. I could like, oh, sweet, move up one row. I want to get in your face today, okay? Just kidding. I could go back as far as the second row, and I can go as far as the edge of the stage. But if I go any farther than that, something bad happens. And I thought to myself, I could stay right here, and a lot of bad stuff could happen. I mean, I can just keep talking. And so you're only moderately safe, but I'll probably stay about where I am. Hey, welcome, Wazoo friends. Were you here when I rapped last night? Because it's fantastic. <laughs> you, you already caught that? Uh, you know, that, was, that sounded like you didn't want to hear some more. But I know that that's not true. So I'll just work straight through that. Don't worry about it. So how many of you uh, looked up uh, some Run DMC last night on, on YouTube? Come on. West Coast biased people, get after it just because they're from the East. Um, so, I can't remember, mostly out of shame and humility, uh, because we, we yeah. Uh, one time, we got invited, run UPC, just in case you forgot the name of the group. It was actually named after the church. It was fantastic. We were run UPC. One time, the church did a 5K fun run. And you know what they called it? Run UPC. <laughs> we performed there, too. That was pretty sweet. But the most ridiculous one, and really not on our part. Look, they're paying us. It's a gig, right? But anybody here from Linden or up near Bellingham? Okay, you know Linden Christian High School? Anybody go to Linden Christian High School? Oh, it's too bad. Because about 1988, had you graduated from Linden Christian High School, Run UPC could have played your graduation party. Are you kidding me? Like, okay, oh, I forgot to tell you. We had a rap group slash four-part harmony deal. So that was good. Kind of went along with the whole wedding singer thing. It was good. And in the moment, it seemed all right. But anyhow, we took this one rap, and I can't remember how the rap went at all. Again, this is the Lord's goodness to me that I've mostly blocked it out. But I had the intro to this thing. It would really be helpful if I had somebody who could drop a beat. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> You don't have to, yeah. I know JD can, but I'm not going to make him come up here and do that. That'll be like, you know, I'll get a text. No, 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 no. No, I really, I really meant that. I really meant that, yeah. So, I'll get a text from my wife saying, you know, within minutes, like, why did you just do that? So um, I'll, I'll just, just, just do it by myself. <laughs> but it was the beginning to the rap, 1988, Run DMC, I'm Proud to be Black. It was a great rap. Okay, you guys should really check into it, okay? And so he gives his lineage in the front of it, and we turned it into a rap about Jesus. And instead of the introduction, it was an introduction of who Jesus was. And it goes, okay, remember, I'm laughing with you, but you'll be laughing at me, all right? So this is good. It starts out like this. He goes, yo, 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 check this out. Say he was born. This is where the beat would hit. Okay. Son of God, brother to James, 
Mary was his mama and Jesus is his name. Yo, he's the Messiah. There is no other. This rap came from God. Not your mother. Yeah, that was it. So, that's good. There we go. Don't say I never did anything for you, all right? You know, um, listening this morning to Kevin, um, Kevin's a great guy, and where's Kevin right now? And I was there at Malibu with Kevin last year. It was really fun. We did uh, work crew over discipleship weekend over Memorial Day. It's so fun being in partnership um, with the inn and having so many different opportunities. Somebody was asking about that recently in Young Life. Like, ah, you know, how does that all work? I'm like, here's the great thing. They offer a ton of stuff that we get to bring people to, and then we offer some things that we also can connect with people that, that maybe we didn't know through Young Life that would say, like one thing I hear oftentimes people say, I've never been to Malibu, and I can say, I can fix that. Come with us. It's good, but what's most important about all those things are there are opportunities for us to continue to walk towards the God who has earned our trust by his act of love. His creative act of love, first in loving us perfectly in creation and giving us life and saying, I, you know, I love you just the way you are. I made you the way you are. I love you. If you could believe that, I said this last night, if you could believe that God loves you more than I love my kids, doesn't just like you or think you're okay, but adores you. You know, that may have been a difficult question, by the way, the idea of who on this planet, who in this world adores you. And I know I've asked that question and sat with a bunch of high school kids before and just I've had a ton of people say, nobody adores me. I don't love me. I don't know anybody who does. And that's hard. I mean, that impacts our world. Doesn't it impact the way you go through life when you don't feel good about yourself? But when we, if we could believe what God says is true, hey, you are his daughters and sons. That is who you are. That's who God has declared you to be. You haven't earned it. Sorry. And good news. You can't lose it. God's given us that, the opportunity to be in relationship because he adores us. And when Kevin was talking about the things that he's done, and I, I, he spoke for me 20 years ago, and he speaks for me today. I feel like I've been doing pretty good in the last year. I feel like I'd still like to know Jesus more. <laughs> I'd like to walk towards him. You know, last night when I said it was kind of weird for me being here, just picturing all the different people. And one of my good buddies that I met here um, well, that came with me here uh, 22 years ago is a guy named Jeff Watling. And Jeff went to high school with me and played basketball in, 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 uh, at our high school. And then he walked on here at the University of Washington and played basketball for the Huskies, which is really kind of fun. And he, he's the most straight and narrow kind of guy. Like, he was always, if, if you could tell him God wants you to do this, he'd do it right away, right away no hesitation. He always wanted to step into things. And then I got another buddy, his name's Kurt. And Kurt's a little bit more of a mess around kind of guy. Like he was, um, if you could tell him this is what God wants you to do, he'd go, oh, I'll get around to that. And, but both of them were loved by God and called by God. And 22 years ago, we were right in this place of trying to figure out what does it look like to know him more in this next year than we do now. I'm meeting them for lunch on Monday because in this last year, one of the two of them nearly destroyed his life, his family's life, the life of a bunch of friends, and just exploded his marriage. And so we've been walking together, the three of us. We have lunch together. We pray together. We've been reading the Bible together. We encourage him to go to counseling. And God has been doing an amazing act of restoration in his life. 
So three weeks ago, three of us got together, Jeff and Kurt and I are talking about just the generally around that thing, usually, kind of the brokenness of the one person. But see, you never know what's up next in your life. Last Saturday, I was speaking, doing a seminar at a Young Life deal on loss and grief with some friends of mine. And this guy comes up afterwards. He's got tears in his eyes. He goes, thanks so much for a couple of tools there because you know, you know Jeff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know Jeff. And he's like, well, I, I just haven't been able to figure out how to just kind of walk up and talk to him because, you know, Renee's got breast cancer. And, um, well, he didn't say that. He just kept saying, because of Renee, because of Renee. I go, hang on a second. I just had lunch with him a couple weeks ago. What are you talking about? And he goes, oh, you hadn't heard? His wife's got breast cancer. So, like, three days after he walks out of our last lunch, where we're all thinking about our other buddy, right? We're thinking about how do we encourage him and, and keep him going. But everything's okay with us, right? Everything's good. And I've been walking straight with God. And, and, and I'm sure there can't be a challenge that's going to come my way that would make me not want to cling to God or be angry at God or cause some trouble in my relationship with God. And then you go home and you find out your wife's got breast cancer. And you know what? We're going to get together and do the same thing that we've been doing, which is kind of come together and say, hey, I don't know nothing about anything. Does anybody want to hear a rap? And they'll say no. And... <laughs> but I love you guys. And I love the same God who called us to himself so many years ago. Let's stick together and let's walk towards God in this. And let's believe God no matter what. And you know, Jeff, he's just a straight, he'll say, oh yeah, that's what I'm planning on doing. Come with me. Let's do that. Life is full of brokenness. And in the end, it leads to death and then life. None of us get out of that part of the loss and pain and brokenness. But along the way, because we seek to avoid pain, and make life here as comfortable as we can, we can miss the opportunity that God has for us to, to serve God alone. I'm going to talk about that this morning, that if we respond to God's love for us and say, I'm all yours, I surrender, that unfortunately that will have to be a lifelong process because then each day things will come up where you say, I love God and I'd like me some of this too. I want all of you, Lord, but I, can I hedge my bet on this? I trust in nothing but you and my bank account. There are tons of things in this world that we have to live in that pull us away from what God says. God meets us in our brokenness. There's not anybody who's come into a relationship with Jesus that didn't start that with some form of a sentence like this, God, on my own, I am lost. And that's where we begin, this relationship with Jesus. By the way, you can do that at any time. Brokenness, it's a good thing. On my own, I'm lost. God, I give myself to you. And unfortunately, even on the straight and narrow, we can spend the rest of our lives trying to prove to God that now that we've come to him, that we really don't need him in order to be a really good Christian, which God has no desire for us to be a really good Christian. Just wants your heart and all of your life. You can call yourself whatever name you'd like to along the way. But he wants all of you. What does that look like? And what stumbles us? What, what gets in our way? We're going to talk about that this morning a little bit. And again, I should, I should have said this. I talked to a bunch of you last night during the, in between the balloon pops. I, I never get used to that. Whenever a balloon pops, I just, just do that every time. So I was having a neat conversation with Austin, and he just was going like, what is your deal? And I'm just, just, just the whole time, because we were in there. We were the last ones in there, and they were just going around popping every balloon while we were in there. We didn't have the good sense to walk out of there. 
I didn't. Austin, you were just being respectful and not leaving because we were talking. I appreciate that. <laughs> so we're going to talk um, a little bit about those things. And what I said to Austin last night is, and, and a couple other folks, um, huge just disclaimer here. Um, I'm just talking about stuff that God's working on in my own life. And, and actually, that's not a bad deal for you because uh, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff, it's somebody who's been trying to follow after Jesus for a long time with a few tips for fellow travelers. So some of that stuff's going to be helpful to you, and other things really is just about me and God. For that, I apologize, and let's just pray that God makes clear the stuff that's for you um, as we talk this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to lean into what you have for us, into the love that you had in the Trinity, into the world that's been created out of that love. Relationships of love are possible. Lord, we lean into you, the God who knows us. We lean into you, the one who created us to be worshiping people. But we do so this morning admitting that sometimes we take that which you have designed in us, the desire to worship, and we direct it towards things that are not worthy of our worship. We direct it towards things, even good things, that are not you. Will you help us to see maybe some of those blind spots in our own lives this morning and claim them as our own? In Jesus' name. Amen. If we take what God has designed in us, which is we're designed to be worshiping people, you may have noticed that sometimes whether it's worshiping in song or, or, or you're just in the Word of God or you just, boom, you see a mountain, whatever it is, you do, there's something in you that goes, oh, God, you're amazing, and it feels right. I don't know scientifically how to break that down, but I'm going to tell you, here's part of that. You're created for a response to God to be one where you're basically saying, you are God and I am not. It makes sense that you kind of people are like, ah, oh, I feel good. You know, just worship was good today. What do they mean by that? During that time, I felt kind of closer to God. I mean, that's what, mostly what they mean by it. You know, I don't think they normally think, you know, the words were really cool or that was really great. or whatever. I mean, there are worship songs that we like, but it's the act of worship, right? Where we're laying ourselves before God. And that makes sense because during that time, whatever it is for you, at least for during that time, you are admitting that God is God and you are not. And that makes things better in your relationship. But if we take that and direct it towards anything else, then we have what the Bible calls an idol. It's kind of a funky term. It seems like an Old Testament term. And then it's out in culture again. People talk about it all the time today. And so I want to break it down just a little bit to explain at least what I mean when I say that. um, Because I think I have some, and I'd like to get rid of them. And I think I'll pick up some new ones along the way. And I want to be able to better identify them, not be fooled by them, and not run towards the fake happiness that they seem to offer. And the only way to do that is to know at least what they are. So um, there's a book that I've been reading, I read last year, I'm rereading it again. It's good to have a Kindle. Um, is by Tim Keller, and it's called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and the Only Hope that Matters. And he basically defines it in there. I kind of like this. It's when we take anything, but he sort of says in this book, when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. Anything wrong with money? People? No. Is there anything wrong with sex? Don't answer that. No. God created it. Is there anything wrong with security? Is there anything wrong with family? Is there anything wrong with reputation? Is there anything wrong with relationships? No. Not in and of themselves. But when those things, which are good things, become ultimate things for us, then they've taken our eye and our worship off of God and onto those things, and they've become an idol for us. We've got to find them. 
We've got to fight against it a little bit. We've got to turn to Jesus in it. We need a little bit of correction. Um, I got a couple pictures of my son Drew up here. That uh, These really are Drew. These aren't me. That's not me faking pictures of JD and telling you that they're Drew. But you can never really tell because they all look a lot alike when they're little. So Drew was always a little bit of a, you could just kind of hit through all three of them actually there. He, he's a, just a goofball and very funny. But hold there for just a second. He broke his arm really, really bad playing soccer one year. And so it was actually September 20th. Um, and I remember the day because it's National Blacksmith Family Don't Play Soccer Day. Because, um, one, because apparently in our family at least, soccer is of the devil. And I don't think that's true for everyone. But on September 20th, in consecutive years, both of my boys fractured their arms playing soccer. And they didn't even like soccer that much. So we decided we're done with this soccer thing, okay? <laughs> um, they became basketball players because I just didn't want them breaking their arms all the time. We couldn't have that. But this t- just tells you a little bit about Drew, you know, because Drew could take anything and work it to his advantage. He's just ridiculously so. He's just a cute little guy. He works the dimples a lot, you know, and he just... And so he still had to fundraise for the foolish soccer team that he was no longer going to play on, right? Um, I may or may not have caused a big stink about that, sure, because I'm like, are you kidding me? We still, have to, we still have to sell the chocolate, and then Drew comes up with this idea that maybe, perchance, Heather and I had a discussion about whether or not it was manipulative or not, and I'm like, hey, this is just good sales, okay? <laughs> so we were doing this thing. We started Young Life College at the University of Arizona uh, like eight years ago or nine years ago, and, and so I'm going to Young Life College, and he says, Dad, how about I come sell some chocolate at Young Life College? <laughs> so he puts all the chocolate in his arm sling. Sold out that night, people. <laughs> we sold all the way out. There are no more chocolate. You can have it if you didn't want it. I was like, Drew, you are the man. Go home. Go to bed. Um, but, you know, Drew needed a little bit of a correction when he broke his arm. It was this weird deal. Since it was a year after J.D. had broken his arm, I, like the, the man of God that I am and perceptive as I am, my wife was a soccer coach. I should say she brought the devil into our house. She... <laughs> And she was a really good soccer player. And uh, her uncle Gene, who's from like Switzerland and talks, he has a great accent. He says, your mother, she could have been a pro. She always says that. He always says that to the kids, but there wasn't, there, there wasn't pro soccer for women then. And so, but apparently she could have been a pro. And so she coaches the guys growing up in soccer. And I'm like, yeah, way to go. And uh, watching that. And so she's over on one side of the field. And Drew goes down and he, and the, you know, apparently he fractured his arm. And, but <laughs> she goes, Steve. Get over here, he broke his arm. And do you know what I say? <laughs> this is classic. Only because I've been reminded of it a gazillion times. Because this can make its way up in other conversations, which are all designed to say, you don't know, I know, okay? So I said, oh, he didn't break his arm. <laughs> You're just thinking, you know, I'm sure he's fine. Because I'm thinking, you know, it's like, hey, it's September 20th. You know, I know, we're all a little on edge today. But... <laughs> but I think it's going to be okay. Well, I go over, his arm is a noodle, okay? So right here, it's, it goes, and then it goes, whoop, like that, and then it goes back up the other way, and I'm like, well, hello there. <laughs> so we go, and this is what dads do all the time, too, because nobody ever called, dads just kind of, there's, there's perfectly good ambulances that go unused because of dudes like me, right? You know, they're just like, holy mackerel, we had to get him to the hospital right away. I'll take him. So let's get in the car. You know, we're just kind of driving on down there. And then I'm going to walk him into the 
into the waiting room there, and, and I don't have anything to cover his arm. And I mean, it's like, you know, it, it could be a bar for Rama if people, you know, with, with queasy stomachs look at it. And so we look for something, and this, I'll just never forget this, really not part of the story, just kind of funny. What do you find in a minivan full of boys, just kind of clothing articles all the time? Found a pair of underwear, so we just put it right over his arm. Don't know how long the underwear had been in the van, actually. But we just put it over his arm. We go walking into the wait, waiting room. We get up to the front, and they triage. You know, how many of you are healthcare kind of major kind of people? You want to be a doctor or a nurse, or you want to be an orthopedic? Okay, sweet deal. But you know, the nurse at the front desk, she holds all the power, all of it. She can decide if you get seen or if you wait for days. <laughs> and like, there's like people looking there. You know, Tucson's in Arizona, and old people go there to die. And so like, there's like a lot of people there. They're, I mean, they do. It's nice though. It's really nice. It, um, <laughs> And you might as well have a suntan when you go. So, uh, so uh, there's a lot of old people, and it's, in the, and it's in the fall, and so the snowbirds haven't left yet. And so it, it's, uh, um, they, uh, he, he's got the deal, and so I bring him up to the triage desk, and she goes, well, she goes, well sir, it's he, uh, he fell, he hurt his arm. Look, it's pretty bad. And she goes, well, let's, see, sir, let's, let's have you fill out a couple forms. I just pulled the underwear right off the hand. And she goes, oh, boom, we're in the back room, like quicker than you can be. It's like, you know, because all the snowbirds have queasy stomachs. So we're in the back, and um, he's in pain. Like, he's really, really hurting. And uh, as it just would happen, we're really grateful. I mean, I, I just think, okay, thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for the little things. I actually think that Jesus cares about my life, even in the little details. It doesn't mean that everything that pops up good in my life is of God's providence, but I'm going to give him thanks for the good things that do show up that just seem, hmm, this is a nice little coincidence, isn't it? That an orthopedic a pediatric orthopedic guy was in there on a previous call and was just getting ready back to go back to his office a long ways away when he hears Drew, because Drew's kind of moaning pretty good, never was a very good patient, and uh, he, he comes back and somebody tells him what's going on, he pops in and he goes, hey, he explains who he is, and uh, he goes, can I take a look at it? I go, yeah, of course, you're a doctor, like, do you ask my permission? What's the deal? This is your place. <laughs> so he steps in there, and, um, and then... Uh, a volunteer in the hospital pops in, and Nico Habaker, and he's, he's a young life leader with us, and he's, he's now a doctor, um, but at the time, he was, you know, like a volunteur and doing his hours and stuff, there. he goes, so then he asks, totally different, he goes, hey, can I stay? I go, oh, yeah, could be really cool. So he sits with me, and we're there, and the guy just really, it just amazed me in the hands of a skilled surgeon how few tools maybe are needed if somebody just really knows what they're dealing with. He knew all the bones that were broken. He knew what he had just with the touch of his hand. He grabs Drew and he kind of gets his hand and he, goes, and he turns to me and he goes, because the plan was, the other doctor was like, give him a shot of morphine. So they'd already given him morphine, but it hadn't totally kicked in yet. Um, and then we're going to wait. We may have to wait a while and then somebody's going to get him and then they'll probably have to do surgery, you know, kind of, because it was really bad. And this guy goes, he looks at me like this and he goes, hey, I got it right now. I got it can I do this? And I'm like, is it going to hurt? Now, <laughs> it's, let's see, which arm was it? Left, is that left arm or reversed in the picture? I can't remember. I have too many kids. It's been too long ago. So anyhow, let's pretend it was his left arm. Um, he, Drew, is only halfway morphined up, and he's starting to get a picture of what's going on. He starts swinging with his good arm. <laughs> hey, hey. But, you know, and I, but I'm, you know, I'm like, I love my son, but I'm looking at the guy who could bring help here, right? I love my son. My son's hurting. He can't help himself. And I'm looking at the one who might be able to bring help. And the question is, 
Do you trust me? Can I do this? It's going to hurt, but it's going to help. And I say yes. And he goes, one, two. Drew gets one last swing in at him. <laughs> Pop, like that. And then his arm's straight. It's completely straight. And all they had to do, they, they put a cast on it and stuff like that. Drew only mostly remembers it, so I'd appreciate it if you see him that, you know, you don't tell him my version of the story, which is I made the call for him. It was a little bit tough. But here's why. He needed a little correction right there. It was important. And he was in the hands of one he could trust. The guy was skilled. We need a little correction in life. And you're in the hands, not mine, of the God of the universe who loves you, knows you by name, and knows all the days ordained for you before even one of them has begun. The one who's gone to prepare a place for you with many rooms. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have said so. And one day he will come back and say, come and be with me, my bride, my beloved. You're in the hands of the one who created everything. But the correction's still going to hurt a little bit. But it's going to be really helpful. So what do we do when we're just a little bit out of whack? Well, first of all, we celebrate the fact that we are in really good company. Do you know that people have been missing it forever? The people of God have been rescued from their mess by God forever and ever, and then turn back to that mess, the same one, or they go find a new one. They go and turn towards things that they think will give them life, turning away from the one who's clearly given them life. We do that too, but we're in good company. And the good news is that God has been in the business of redeeming and restoring those people regardless of how far they've run away forever and ever. We can trust him to do the same thing with us. You know, the Ten Commandments weren't just given because it would be like, hey, these will look great on a door frame, and, you know, it'll be just kind of a nice way to write out. It was like, look, let me make it clear. Here's, here's the, the framework for our covenant relationship. I love you, but here's some things that are killing our relationship. So don't do these things. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Check that out. I believe that that's the same thing for me. I think that Jesus could say to me, I am the Lord your God who created you and rescued you from the slavery you had to trying to find your own way, to trying to find your own worth in this world. I rescued you from that. Let's stay close. So the first commandment, you must not have any other God but me. This just makes sense to me. It really does, doesn't it, on the surface? If there's no other God than God, then we shouldn't have any mini-gods because they are less than God, and they make our God less than God. We hedge our bet, and God doesn't want that. And then here's the second part. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything um, in the heavens or on the earth, or in the sea. You must not bow, bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am jealous. I am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for other gods. Okay, so this is clear, right? This is God's word to us forever and ever. So we know this. It's not just me saying it. God does not want us to mess around with sub-gods. doesn't want us to mess around with idols, which then I've defined kind of initially here as something. And in most cases, because you're too smart to fall for like the just blatantly bad things, a good thing that you've turned into an ultimate thing. How can we stay away from those things? 
Um, one, again, rec just recognizing that it's part of the human condition, so we're susceptible to it. That's the first thing to know this. Last night, you could have an awesome conversation with somebody about the love of God. You could have talked about how God adores you, and you could have said that in my relationship with God over the last year, I couldn't feel more close to God than I do right now. And this morning, you could wake up susceptible to looking somewhere else for life. As a matter of fact, one of the places that you could look was in your own success as a Christ follower. See, we can get jammed up saying, all I want to do is live for God. Me, do something that happens to be living for God. It, the phrase itself is good, hey, live for God. This guy, I'm not trying to just you know, totally split words completely. I'm just saying this. If the desire is, God, let me show you how I can live for you. It, it's just a narrow route to then, I'm doing it better than that person. I'm not doing it as bad as this person. I'm really good at this. You should be proud of me. I'm proud of me. I like my life. I'm a good moral person. Others think I'm a good moral person. This is not what God wants for us. And suddenly we've got an idol of pride. We've got an idol of self-righteousness. We've got an idol of religiosity. And ain't, nobody wants to be around the religious person, right, do they? We don't even want to be around them. And now we've stumbled and we feel depressed about how did we get so self-righteous and proud and religious? We feel bad about our relationship and we wonder where God has gone. Nowhere. Here's the good news. Quick correction. The painful process of unlearning is very important because it makes space in our lives for us to relearn or learn for the first time the grace of God, the empowering presence of God, and that God will always be God and won't tolerate us having any others. I'll say that again, though. The most difficult thing in my life, most painful thing in my life has always been the painful process of unlearning the stuff that I've added on to what God has already made perfectly clear, the crap that I've added, the extra rules, like a Pharisee. I've taken what's good, and then I've added extra things onto it. And the most painful process in my life has always been unlearning those things so that God can teach me anew. So one, recognize that you're susceptible. They sneak up on us. There's this guy in the Old Testament. His name is Micah. It's not the same Micah. Because um, uh, there's a couple guys, sure, common name. And in the book of Judges, how many of you have read through the book of Judges at all? It's really cool. If you're, uh, I had like to read it to little boys growing up because it's like this really adventurous part of the Bible. There's tons of people, like stuff happens, like a guy sticks like a dagger sword, a sword goes in a guy's stomach all the way in and the fat encloses around it. It's like a Schwarzenegger movie gone biblical. It's like just <laughs> phenomenal. It's like this, you're like, man, check that out. God's amazing. And, and things happen, you know, just incredible stuff and, and great warriors men and women of God, which is great. But one of the most common phrases in the book of Judges, and you find it again in, in uh, chapter 17 and 18, says this, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Hey, guess what? You're in good company. That's where you live. More now than ever. Once you leave the actual direct, you know, house of your parents, you are in the land of nobody's the boss of me. Welcome. Got good news and bad news. The good news is you can make a lot of decisions. The bad news is you can make a lot of decisions. <laughs> Some of them can be really bad. 
you can find yourself in trouble. You can find yourself wishing there were a few more parameters. You can find yourself wishing you had a little less freedom. So anyhow, as we look at Micah, a couple things that, that happened here. In chapter 18, I'll just kind of zip to the end of this story, but in chapter 17, he'd wandered off into this different place and kind of created his own sort of right world. He decided that this is where he would live, and then, oh, okay, well, I need to worship God, but not the one true God, even though that was clear to him. What would it be? So he made, it says that he made an idol. And he had a household idol and a carved image. And he knows that he's not supposed to have that. And a sacred garment as well that he worshipped. Like this is, you know, God's going to be present here. And then, as luck would have it, or as what Micah thought, as God would have it, God brought into his life this sort of pseudo-ex-Levite priest. Somebody from the line that was to perform all these sacrificial rituals and somebody that God had ordained to be a connector to help us be closer with God. But this guy had kind of stumbled along and was out of work and walks into Micah's house and he goes, hey, you want to be our family priest? It's like, sure. Well, great. Here's what we worship. Come on. Nobody in the room is able to say, uh, can I really be your priest if we're not worshiping God? Micah doesn't say, I can't believe you said yes to that. Because here's another thing about our susceptibility to idols. Is, well, it's just a funny little verse in the Bible, but it says this, that bad company corrupts good morals. Like, if you hang around with a bunch of people that make bad decisions, don't be so surprised that your decisions suck too, okay? If you want to do a bunch of messing around, you will find plenty of people that will encourage you towards that way. Just don't be surprised that you kind of go, hey, I asked you for good advice. And if the person says back to you, if they could, if they could just say it on their forehead, because no one wants to say this about themselves, and I have never given you or anyone else good advice in my entire life. Why are you looking at me? Why are we so surprised that we look around at a bunch of other broken and hurting people that we're supposed to love? This is cool. This is not a problem that we're with them. And decide that we'll group think our way towards what's right in the eyes of God. Group think is not a good thing. We're susceptible to idols, and group think is not a good way for us to keep ourselves from idols. So, but then here's the other thing about idols. Man, they get into our heart. This good thing. I want to be a really good student so that I can provide for my family or I can care for the family that sent me here. That's a good thing, right? But then they get into our heart, and that's all we are. And everything revolves around that. And we lose who we are face-to-face with the God of the universe. I said last night, on our own, if we try to examine ourselves, we don't get a good view of ourselves. We're a little bit too self-centered. Our perspective is limited. But if we allow God to show us God's view of us, then we can have a right picture of God and a right picture of what, what we're meant to be. But as soon as we start focusing in on something else, security, family, reputation, grades, then, then everything is out of whack. And that's all we see. It's like the room just got dialed in, right? And it's like, wow, I can only see one thing right now. And it's not God in the middle of it. And the problem with that is then the parting with those things is really painful. Because even though you know in your head, as God brings you in grace to say, hey, that's an idol, let's get rid of that, you go, hey, could we talk about that for a little bit? What if I make that sort of less important to me? Like, you're, you're my God. Don't worry. You and me, we're tight. You're my God. You're the God. But I, I'm just, I, I'll make it not a God. But I'd still like to have it kind of over here. And the reason is because they, they're in our heart. 
and there are security. And it's really hard when those things get pulled away. So here's what happens in the story. These other people from the tribe of Dan come in, and they, um, they check out, and they're, and they're sort of intrigued. Like, hey, you're a Levite priest. What are you doing here? Uh, basically, the answer is, I have a sweet gig. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the answer. It's like, not like, well, this is why I'm doing it. And then they come back later, and they, they go back and say, we're going to take these people. Let's bring our warriors, and we're going to take these people. We're going to go through there. But they liked the priest. They liked the guy. So they come in, and they, 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 they greet him, the Bible says, kindly. It's like, hey. Come and be our priest. You should be a priest to all of us, not just this one family. So the priest is kind of like, all right, A, don't want to die. This is a good thing. And two, I'm going with you. So he takes all of his stuff and says, he took along the sacred ephod of the family, the, the clothing, the household idols, and the carved image. They turned and started on their way again, placing their children, livestock, and possessions in front of them. When the people from the tribe of Dan were quite a distance from Micah's house, the people who lived near Micah came chasing after them. They were shouting as they caught up with them. And the men of Dan turned around and said to Michael, what's the matter? Why have you called these men together and chased after us like this? I just think it's a funny sentence. Like, well, you did steal everything I own. But um, what do you mean, what's the matter, Michael replied. Now listen to this. Just see, this is just a great little litmus test for anything you have in your life. Maybe it's good, but it's become an ultimate thing. And here's how you know, if you'd, if you'd feel this way, if it were ripped away from you. Micah says this, what do you mean? What's the matter? You've taken away all the gods I've made and my priest, and I have nothing left. No matter what your false god is or mine, it will always leave us empty. And if it's taken away, we'll feel completely lost. And it can and will be taken away. There's nothing in this world that will stand. If there's something that if you feel like if it was taken away, you'd be completely lost and not who you are, even in your relationship with God, you might want to start the process of getting rid of that now. Because God doesn't want you to have something like that before him. It's another God. Let me just, I'm going to send you with a couple questions. Before I do that, I'm going I'm to close with the story of Jesus, because I always think that's super important to me to think when the God of the universe put skin on and came and walked in front of us and then interacted with people, I think I could be that person. I could have been that person that Jesus was interacting with. What is in there for me? And what can I learn about Jesus by the way that he interacted with this person? And if you've got your Bible and you want to look, or it's up on the screen in Mark um, chapter 10, uh, starting, I think, in verse 17. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, no, no, not a worry at all. Um, so, and if you don't have it, um, it's a really easy story, and, and you're probably pretty familiar with it. I'm going to read it to you here. It says this. As Jesus started on his way, it starts in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a really interesting question, and they have a little bit of dialogue about it. Because it says, as Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God. God alone. Let's pause there before he gives him his answer. He happened to be running into God, so it's okay that he's like, well, you're good, but if he wasn't, Jesus was just going to become another mini-God for him too, right? Well, you seem to have a lot of power. People are following after you. What do you think I should do to make my life better? Because I'd like to be a good God follower. I'd really like to do that. So Jesus, it's not that the question is horrible. It's just that it's not the primary question. It's a legitimate question, because assuming there's eternal life to be offered in the age to come, wondering how you could attain it is not a bad question. Ironically, he was asking it of the one who would later say, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who could give life, eternal life, and give it in immediacy. It's not that he was asking the wrong question, or, or it was a poor question. It just wasn't the primary question. What should he really have asked? Jesus, can you give me life? And he would have had it. I'm not just making this stuff up. When Jesus was on the cross, one of the accounts tells us that there were two that were crucified with him, and one's on the other side, and he says, he's this criminal. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say back to that guy? Today you will be with me in paradise. It has nothing to do with the merit of the individual. If you cry out to God to give you life, he'll give you life. But in order to cry out, we have to come to the end of our self-reliance. And this guy wasn't anywhere near the end of his self-reliance. As a matter of fact, it was his idol. And lovingly, Jesus walked him through the painful process of unlearning. And he says this, Well, you know the commands. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Do you know he starts kind of like in the lower half of the of the uh, Ten Commandments there? What did he skip? All the stuff at the beginning, which is this. <laughs> I am the Lord your God, you'll have no other God besides me. Then he gets down to kind of the practical things. But the, it's really funny to me because the real issue is the guy's got other gods. Which is why he's able to say, well, I haven't killed anybody. So Jesus says, do these things, honor your father and mother. And the guy says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Can I just give you just another little side encouragement? If you ever find yourself and you believe you're in the presence of God, face-to-face with God, and God asks you a question about the crap you may have done in your life, like, don't lie. It never goes well for the people who lie. But it goes amazingly well for the people in humility bring all of their brokenness and sin before God and say, I'm so sorry. This is my life. Can you do anything with it? Yes. I will give you a new life. Would you like it? Yes. I would like a new life. You can't get a new life if you're pretending your old life is so great. I got this thing wired. I don't need your help, but I'm here to ask anyhow. Jesus looked at the man and loved him. This is an account. Somebody's writing this down. How does a guy have to look at, how does Jesus have to look at someone so that another person watching it would go, oh, wow, he loves that guy. I mean, you've seen dirty looks before. You've seen affectionate looks. You know you've probably had somebody in your life that's looked at you in a way where, you, where you, everyone else could see your mom or something. They, they love, well, she loves him. He loves her. Jesus looks at this guy who's so messed up, asking the wrong questions and pretending that he's not guilty, and he loves him. And that's how he looks at you too. He looks at you even when you pretend to have all your crap together. And you sort of build this little thing and go, look here, here's my life. Isn't it great? And he just goes, man, I love you. And then he loves him enough to not leave him there. He's like, maybe we got a shot here today. We can get rid of this thing that you really love, your own self-reliance, your money, your stuff. 